Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. On today's episode, please welcome in Jason Pfeiffer, who is the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, a nonstop optimism machine, and a widely recognized authority on business and how people navigate change. He is the author of the best-selling book, Build for Tomorrow, a startup advisor, and host of the podcast, Help Wanted and Problem Solvers. And he was also named Top Voice in Entrepreneurship by LinkedIn. Jason has also had a decades-long career in national media, which included working as an editor at Men's Health, Fast Company, Maxim, and Boston Magazine, and writing about business and technology for The Washington Post, Slate, New York Magazine, and others. I hope you all enjoy this conversation I had with Jason. I know I did. So without further ado, please welcome in Jason Pfeiffer. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Good to have you, man. Good to be here. I'm excited for this conversation. Been following your journey for a little bit, and um, oh, thank you. Excited to uh, have you drop a few nuggets here for everyone. Um, there's a lot of spots I want to go with our time today. I thought it would be something sure. cool though, because you know where we talk a lot with just get started is around kind of taking control of your life and. Mm-hmm you know, not letting others make the decision, not that at times, you know, that doesn't happen, but really trying to take control and make decisions. And you said something, I thought this would be a cool spot. I don't know if you remember saying this, but this is back all the way your wheat bread magazine days. Do you remember those days? Oh my God, you really did the dive. I love it. So you said something, I just want to take one small piece of it because I thought this was really interesting about getting started. You said, I don't ever just want to carry the ball. I want to create. I don't know if you remember saying that or not, but Tell me your thoughts about not just kind of letting others make the decision and, and let the wind move you, but actually deciding and actually making a decision to change. So Wheat Bread Magazine, for those who don't know, which should be everybody, was the <laughs> college magazine that I don't even think exists anymore that I was the editor of. And, I, you know, even back then, I didn't really want to carry the ball. There were times in my career where I was fine carrying the ball. Um, and by, by that, I mean, walking into a situation where somebody says, here's how we do things. And what we need you to do is to just be good at it, to just make sure that it keeps going. And there are moments in everybody's career where I think that that's fine. I actually think that it's, it's not good to, at the very beginning of your career, expect in every circumstance that you are going to radically shift things. There's an, there's a moment of absorption. Uh, I, I like to think of my, of my working life in terms of decade long themes. Mm-hmm. So my, I'm 43 right now. So my twenties were about setting it up and setting it up means a lot of learning, a lot of figuring out where I am, a lot of understanding what my value add is. So 20s is figuring it out or setting it up. 20s is setting it up. 30s is executing it. Okay, now I know how to do it. And now let me go figure out how to like maximize that. Let me go start to start to really have an impact. And then 40s is doing it on my own terms. That's mm-hmm. that's the trajectory. And I don't know what 50s are going to be. We'll, we'll I'll let you know when I get there. <laughs> um, but I... I think that there is a turning point moment in everyone's career and it's not in it's not in one moment. It's not something you wake up one day and say, "Aha, I have crossed over." Where 
but there should be, uh, I think, a goal, a gradual goal of going from being the person who learns and who can maintain to being the person who can add and change. And that has been the satisfying career arc for me. Years ago, we ran a feature at Entrepreneur Magazine about the guy, Michael Dubin, who started Dollar Shave Club. Mm -hmm. And he said that he likes to step into molten environments. Um, and I really love that phrase, molten environment, which is to say an environment that's not hardened yet, yeah. where he can have an active hand in shaping. And I think the important thing about this journey that I'm describing here is that at some point we should be looking for that opportunity for ourselves. We shouldn't be, we should be humble to know when we're not there yet and where we still need to absorb, but we should feel empowered once we feel like we do have something really sharp and useful to say. And then we want to make sure that we're putting ourselves in circumstances where we can enact that because not every environment is molten. Michael said that he likes to be in molten environments, but some of the, some environments are not molten, right? Some environments are, you're going to walk into an organization and that organization is perfectly happy doing things exactly the way that they are. Now you, we could debate the logic and the, and the, and the wisdom of right. that. But if the leadership is saying, we just want things exactly how they are. And you come in like, uh, you know, someone who's going to shape things, there's going to be a culture clash. So you need to understand not just where are you in this journey, but also what what environments can you go into that are going to be welcoming of you at whatever stage of the journey you're at. You should not be in an organization that expects you to shape it if you are not yet ready to shape things. And you should not be in an environment that does not want to be shaped if you're at that point in your career where all you want to do is shape. Do you find that when folks are looking at organizations to go into, um, we'll go down this rabbit hole just for a minute, but I'm kind of curious, yeah. like it, is there things that they should be looking out for questions to ask an interviewing process you think, or like, how, because some, you're right. Like some folks I think say, Oh, I'm going to go in and I'm excited. And then they get in, they're like, Oh my God, this is like turning the Titanic. Like there's no <laughs> way I could, I could impact change here. So I'm kind of curious, like how you think about it going into a new role. I think that you, okay. To answer that, let me start by telling you how I hire, and something that I always look for. When I hire editors or writers or whatever, I, we always give them, and this is standard in my industry, I'm sure every industry has its own version of it, we give, we give what's called an edit test, which changes depending on the seniority. So at the very beginning, the edit test is, is really like more of an edit test. It's like, are you a good editor and writer? Mm -hmm. Uh, so please edit this stuff. But as somebody progresses in the career, if I was to try to hire a, a deputy or an executive editor or somebody more senior, at this point, I, there's no question. They obviously may know how to write and edit. So now really it's a question of thinking. Do you think the way that, that we need you to? Are you a good idea generator? Are you able to recognize uh, how to connect to the audience? And so the edit test is more like idea generation oriented. But here's the thing. I always ask for a critique of whatever it is that I'm hiring to, a critique of the magazine, a critique of the brand, a critique of what we're publishing. And I, I heavily favor, heavily favor the respondents who are willing to tell me what they actually think and what they think I'm not doing well enough, or we are not doing well mm -hmm. enough, and where we as a, as a brand could improve. Um, I don't get that from from everybody. A lot of times when people when I ask people for a critique, 
um, what they give me is like a list of the things that that they think are great. Oh, you were so smart to do that. We really love mm. that. Um, I don't really, I don't really w want those people um, because I don't want people who are just going to come in and say, um, "I love what you're doing. How can I continue to do it?" I want people who are going to say, "Ah, I see opportunities that you've missed." And now I, I understand that that it can be risky to do that. Not everyone feels comfortable doing it, but it's part of the way that I, as a leader, and I'm I'm not the only leader at Entrepreneur, but I think that the entire leadership um, is like this, where we're looking for people who are going to bring in ideas and help shape. It's a culture that's been set. And if you were interviewing an entrepreneur, uh, you would be wise to talk to other people who either work at Entrepreneur or find people who used to work at Entrepreneur and say, you know, what's it like? And, and what kind of people are they looking for? And how open are they to to change and, and, and feedback, um, you'd want to test that out. Mm. Now, let's just flip it. So if you are that person who, who's applying, I would say be intellectually honest through the process. So if you are looking for roles that will value you as someone who shapes things, then you should respond to prompts as if you are a person who shapes things, um, right? Like the, I understand that there's a risk and that, oh, well, I could, I could say things that I don't like, but maybe it's going to piss them off. But you know what? If it's going to piss them off, then that's not a place that you want to work at anyway. Yeah. So you might as well filter yourself out now, right? And in a way, I don't see it as a risk to do that. So I, I think it's, it's about feeling out, understanding, and then just going in, acting the way that you want to act when you're in the role. And either people are going to be responsive to that and therefore give you that leeway when you are in the role, or they're not, and you can go find somewhere else. Oh, yeah. that's Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, it's like dating, right? It's like, why would you show up as someone that's yeah. not the same person? Because in three months, if you're dating that same person, your true self is going to come out. Totally. Well, why why would you fake it that. at the beginning? Why would you waste time, you know? Like, why, and like, why, like, why, why put a, why put a, right, it, this, and you could, and I, I met my wife, uh, online dating. Um, you know, it's like, you get all these people who would post these photos of themselves that are not at all representative of, of, of what they look like, where they just make lie like lies about themselves. And then you meet them and it's like, oh, this is, this is not who you said you were. Yeah. Why would you do that? Because it's so obvious immediately that you're not. So come as you are, present as you are, and, um, and you'll find people who are going to value that. Yeah. Well, we can probably have a whole podcast on fun online dating stories. We're not, we're not going to open that can of worms today. Um, a couple other spots I want to hit here, actually. So you sure. said something I thought was really interesting um, that I want to go deep down to um, is yeah. you said the best thing that can happen to you is that something goes wrong. Do you remember mm -hmm. saying that? You were, oh, I, sure. It was yeah. on, the, on the stage um, speaking or on a panel. But again, this is something too. I think about like everyone wants like, oh, if I start something, it's got to be perfect or I got to have everything mapped out. But the reality is I think it's the opposite, it seems like. Oh, yeah. No, you want things to go wrong. And the reason why you want things to go wrong is because it enables you to be the hero. If everything's going right, then you're not the hero. Uh, you're just a, another person who's getting the job done, uh, who's just making sure that bad things don't happen. But when something goes wrong and you are able to step up and solve it, and look, you know, obviously it's better if something goes wrong that you weren't, <laughs> you didn't cause the problem. But you know what? Even if you did cause the problem yeah. and, 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 and then you show that the way that you react to mistakes uh, and the way that you fix mistakes uh, is so, so powerful, 
people will trust you more as a result, right? Uh, I, I think, so first of all, it, I, I was listening to a interview with, I can't, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was a, a engineer at Google X, the moonshot factory over there. And he said, said this really interesting thing. He was talking about AI, but this is relevant to what you're talking about. He said, every problem is either a 51-49 problem or a 100-0 problem, uh, right? Which is to say, um, I, I, every problem is either something you, you just want to get right more often than you get it wrong, like 51-49%, right? Like if you're, if, you're, uh, if you're a stock trader and you get things right 51% of the time, you are fabulously wealthy. That's all it takes, it's just 51%. Then there's hundred zero problems. You need to be right hundred percent of the time. Um, you know, if uh, if somebody's life is in your hands, you want to be right hundred percent of the time. If you're trying to shut down a nuclear reactor that's about to explode, you want to be right hundred percent of the time. Um, but the thing is that m most now he was talking about AI and like you know whether we trust AI, right? It's sort of like trust AI with fifty one forty nine problems, right? Like have it generate a whole bunch of ideas. Most of them will be garbage. Some of them will be useful. Uh, don't trust AI to tell you what to do if you're doing open heart surgery, because it's if, if it's wrong, at least 1%, you're screwed, right? So trust it. But anyway, the when I listened to that, I thought, you know what's so interesting is that you and me and everyone listening to this right now, our lives are primarily full of 5149 problems, but we keep treating them like 100-0 problems. Mm -hmm. So if you mess up, in some situation, you might think, oh, I've blown everything. Like I blew all the trust that I have accumulated and now I show myself to be a failure and we like spiral out of control. I've done it myself. But the thing is that it was probably not a hundred zero problem. Maybe it was, but probably not. It was probably a 5149 problem, which is to say that people are giving you leeway. Your job is not to be perfect. Your job is to be more right than wrong. And then when you are wrong, to show that you can course correct and get to right. And when you do, people notice and they say, ah, this is a person who is committed, committed to getting things correct or to making things correct. Right. So you should give yourself that leeway to understand that sometimes things, you mess things up, right? If, 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 if my wife divorced me, every, if I make a mistake or if I forget you know, to do something or if I say something that's... Um, not thoughtful, right? Like, uh, you know, we would have been divorced a long time ago. Everybody makes mistakes. The question is like, am I right more often than wrong? Yeah. And, um, and so that's number one. Number two to that is when there is a problem, you should think, how can I be the person who solves it and therefore gets recognized for solving it? I remember being at Men's Health, which was my first national magazine job. And there was like some massive mistake that, it wasn't my fault. I stayed there till like one in the morning and I solved it. And you better believe that the editor in chief noticed <laughs> and, uh, and was really appreciative of me. And that was an opportunity for me to say, I am, I, I will fix your problems. I'm not just here to avoid problems. I'm here to fix your problems. And that is how you get valued. Yeah. Well, actually, when you, when you said that, it reminded me of I just did a like a solo episode a couple weeks back, but around like this paradox, I think the more you fail, the more you actually succeed. Like the more yeah. you're willing to fail and whether it's wrong or it doesn't have to be out in the public, I think you could succeed more. And I think about this and I'm curious your thoughts on like a writing mm -hmm. and it could be a podcast, it could be on anything, but like the best ideas sometimes don't come until further down the line. So you have to have some of that shitty writing up front and the and the bad oh, yeah. the bad writing to get to that but if you never give yourself the chance if you're so scared to put out that first draft 
you never can get to the, you know, the published copy build for tomorrow that you have behind you. You know, you don't get to that without, you know, the that's many right. Because the, the first stuff I wrote for this book, you're just referencing the book that's behind me, which is um, my book build for tomorrow. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the, the first draft of that was garbage. Uh, I mean, my editor basically was like, well, okay, good, good for a start. <laughs> now let's tear it all up. Um, no, you're absolutely right. You need to just be able to produce so that you can get through a lot of the bad ideas and get to the good ones. But here's, here's another thing to remember about, about like sort of output. And I found this to be true with writing. Uh, people take at face value what you produce. So if you release something into the world and then you read it and you're like, oh, this could have been so much better. I'm so embarrassed. People, they're not thinking that. They're not thinking, oh, well, this could have been so much better. Oh, he should have written that other thing that he had in his head, but he didn't. Instead, they're just going to take it at face value. They're just going to read it and they're going to move along with their lives. They're not going to spend that much time on it. We obsess. We obsess so much about whether or not the thing that we did lives up to some impossible standard that we have. And as a result, we're afraid to put things out. The only reason why I have the career that I have and I'm able to write at the level that I'm able to is because I wrote a lot of bad stuff. But you know what? It was also fine stuff, right? It was fine. It got published in newspapers and and and, and it was it was it was it was the best that I could produce at the time. And people read it and they moved along with their day. And I though got to learn, got to put things out, got to read it. You know, when you publish something and then you read it once it's published, once it's like a like a, it's not it's not something you could change in a Word document anymore, you see it totally different. You start to see it through your reader's eyes instead of through your own. And you start to recognize, oh, that could have been better. I could have improved that. I could have made that transition better. That's all so valuable. In this way, I think the thing that you're really getting to is that failure is data. That anytime that you do yeah. something, it doesn't really matter if it succeeds or fails. It's just giving you information that you can use for the next time. And in that way, everything that you produce is at once never perfect, but also on the path to improvement. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Well, going back to like you, well, you mentioned about like a hero. Like if you think of the hero, the the story arc, right? The hero's mm -hmm. journey. You have that. Like people can see, like your work, for instance, right? They they have a long tail of that you've been consistent in what you've been doing. Sure, different roles, different opportunities yeah. have come, whatever. But like you're trying, you're testing, you're doing things. I think it's. I think a lot of people forget that like 10, 15 years down the road, people can look like this podcast, right? I go back, look at like episode one, six years ago. Like, oh my gosh, I cringe. Oh, it's probably sounded terrible. Yeah. Right. But, but I it's had fine. an episode where you had to have one before you can have two and so on and so forth. And I think a lot of folks forget that in the starting phase, because it is so scary that you have mm -hmm. to put the work out and see what happens. Like, how do you help folks, I guess, get over that initial hurdle where they're scared to even, they've never put themselves out in public. They've never yeah. done anything. So, okay, a couple things. Number one, some wisdom to share. Ryan Reynolds, I interviewed him for the magazine a while ago. He told me, to be good at something, you must be willing to be bad, which I really love. Because the point that's being made here is the way to evaluate whether or not you're going to be good at something is not whether or not you're good at it at the beginning. Because everyone's bad at the beginning. And so instead, the real difference maker for success is not whether or not you're good at the beginning. It's whether or not you are able to tolerate being bad long enough to get to good. Really useful way of thinking about it. And then another thing that I really love, this one wasn't said to me directly. It was, it just, it was from a recording. But um, uh, Ira Glass, uh, creator of This American Life, uh, you know, kind of classic radio show, he has this really nice way of saying, um, 
he says that at the beginning, particularly in any kind of creative pursuit, but really could be anything, there is a gap between your taste and your abilities. So let's just use writing as an example, but this could apply to anything. You have good taste. You know what good looks like. If you're interested in writing, you have found some authors who you love and respect and whose work you think is great. You know what good looks like, but you are not able to produce it. <laughs> There's a gap right. between your taste, you know what good looks like, and your abilities, your ability to produce what, what good looks like. And that the road to success goes through being comfortable living in that uncomfortable gap long enough that you can narrow that gap between your taste and your abilities. And then, and I will tell you as someone who has gone through that, that what's really fascinating about it is that the more time that you spend, the more you realize that there is so much nuance in a world that you want to get involved in, but you maybe aren't deep into. And that nuance contains forgiveness and it also contains, I, I, it, here's what I mean. I, I like sort of like ran out of how to say this abstractly. So I'll just say it specifically. I am a very bad fiction writer and I am not a really good evocative writer. I'm a really good, simple, clear, fast moving, help people understand kind of writer. And at the start, I felt like I didn't like that because I was reading all these people's work and it was it was floral and it was beautiful and it was getting praised by all the other writerly types. And I, I wasn't getting that. But then I realized that if I really leaned into the strength that I have, then I, I find an audience that values my kind of writing. And it doesn't really matter if I'm not good at that other kind of writing because that's for somebody else. And I don't need to be good at everything. I just need to find the thing that I'm good at. Nobody ever said Shaquille O'Neal is a bad basketball player because he can't shoot three-pointers. Who cares? It like literally doesn't matter. He was really, really good at the thing that he was good at. And there is so much incredible value in figuring out what that is. But to understand what you're good at is also to accept what you're not good at because there's going to be a lot of that stuff. And the more that you, the more that you, you, um, that you sink into a specific world, the more that you understand the nuances of that, right? Like at the beginning, if before I became a professional writer, I might've said, well, you're either a good writer or you're not a good writer and I want to be a good writer. But no, 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 no. There's actually like a bazillion different kinds of writing and you can be good at some of them and bad at some of the others. And it, it that, that's fine. It's better. It's better if you know what you're good at. And the only way to do that is to go through it. Yeah, that kind <clears> of... <throat> When you were saying that, it hit me with a, like a ton of bricks because that's that's how I thought. Because I was never a good writer. It's something I still battle with, I guess, whether I am or not. Mm -hmm. But never, you know, failed English and all that, or almost failed English kind of, and, and that type of stuff back in school. But mm -hmm. it's interesting because when I started to write, I would follow a lot of folks that did these long blogs and these really articulate message. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't do that. And then I came across Seth Godin's work. Mm -hmm. And Seth's blog, very short to the point, I'm like, wow, wait, that's actually how I think. And write. And that's yeah. the last two and a half years blogging, that's how I write, is like short, sync, like that's how I think. And to, to your point, I think this is really something to double down on. It's like 
going to who you are and trusting who you are. This goes back to earlier in our conversation. Like if you're trying to change, don't change just because it's the cool new thing on the block. Right. Change because you want to. And it's something you really enjoy doing, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's it. Don't don't chase it just because it seems like someone else's definition of success. Yeah. All right. Uh, Seth, you know, like, look, there's two ways to talk about Seth. Seth is either really great at what he does, or he's really, really bad at the stuff that he does. He doesn't do right. I mean, <laughs> Seth might be a terrible novelist. Don't read a novel by Seth, right? Like, <laughs> but who cares? It doesn't matter because he's so good at the other things. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. You're right about that. Well, and again, it's it's putting your time into where do you want to spend it and and seeing and then it's and then it's I think it's pivoting and and it seems like you've done this right as you figure out what you like then oh this is better over here let me transition there and and then slowly you wind down this path that you never would have known ten years ago you'd be where you are today you yeah. don't know that but you keep leaning into those decisions that really put you on that path I guess right I mean, yeah because everybody's path is a zigzag path and the job your job is to create and be open to opportunities for for when the next like zig or zag happens. Uh, like there's this thing that I like, like to talk about, which is the, um, I call it work your next job. So I say that in, in, in front of everybody, in front of you right now, there's two sets and me, two sets of opportunities. Opportunity set A, opportunity set B. Opportunity set A is everything that's asked of you. So you go to work and you have a boss or whatever, and the boss expects things of you, you have certain metrics by which you're measured. That's opportunity set A, do a good job. Opportunity set B is everything that's available to you, but that nobody's asking you to do. So at work, that could be new responsibilities, joining a new team. It could be outside of work. It could be you like listening to podcasts and you decided to start a podcast or take a class or something, whatever it is. My argument is that opportunity set B is always more important, like infinitely so, because if you only focus on opportunity set A, you will only be qualified to do the things you're already doing. It's not to say it's unimportant. You got to show up and do a good job or you're going to get fired. But opportunity set B is where real growth happens. And so that's where if you focus on opportunity set B, if you are constantly in pursuit of what's available to me because of this role, because of this time in my life, because of whatever then you're going to start to explore things that are going to open future doors in ways that you cannot predict. And that's where the zigzag path comes from, right? Yeah. Because you start in this place, you know, I, I, I don't know, you like stand-up comedy and you start a podcast about stand-up comedy and it's a very bad stand-up comedy podcast because most comedy podcasts are very bad. But in the process, it teaches you uh, audio editing. And then one day a friend of yours has a band and is like, hey, uh, would you mind, do you, like, do you know how to, do you know how to like record us? And you say, yeah, I think I could figure it out. And you record at the band and they make some demo and they pass it around and people like it and it ends up on Spotify. And now some other bands are coming to you and they say, oh, hey, could you record us too? Now you start doing that. And then eventually um, you, you, you say, well, I guess I, I don't really have a studio. I guess I should go rent a studio. And so you go rent a studio and uh, now there's more business. You say, Actually, maybe I should start a studio. So then you go start a studio. Right? And, and it's like now you're running this completely different business because you started a stand-up comedy podcast that was bad. And that's, that's the zigzag pathway. It makes sense when you look at how step one step led to step two, but it all kind of only makes sense to you. And the reason that it worked was because you were willing to say yes to things because you were willing to be open because Malcolm Gladwell told me self-conceptions are powerfully limiting. 
that the more you limit your understanding of yourself, the more you also limit the opportunities that are available to you. Wow. And so, you know, I mean, the next question obviously is like, well then, but how, how do I know I can't do everything? No, you can't. So try some things, right? Pick a couple things that call to you, uh, run some experiments. You don't have to commit to everything forever. You could say, you know what? I'm going to try this for three months. I'm going to see what happens. By the end of three months, I would like to know if number one, I enjoy it. Number two, um, you know, I, I started a podcast and I was able to get 50 listeners or, you know, like whatever you sort of start to track your metrics and whatever the experiment shows is success. If the experiment shows that it, this is not a good thing for you, that's great. If the experiment shows that it was a good thing for you, that's great. You know, ask anybody who runs scientific experiments. The point of an experiment is not for it to be successful. The point of the experiment is just to learn something, yeah. just to do it and see what happens. And the more that we can think about that, this is an idea that, that was um, given to me by Katie Milkman as a professor at Wharton, uh, wrote a book called How to Change. Uh, you know, and I'd asked her, what's the first thing that people should do if they're trying to explore a change? And she said, the answer is experiment because we don't think about it often enough. We think of everything that we do as some kind of commitment, some long-term mm -hmm. commitment. And that's so scary. And we're so afraid of that how do you commit to something if you don't know if you like it? That people just don't do it at all. Yeah. So give yourself that leeway. Say it's just an experiment. And whatever happens, even if the thing is a total failure, that was learning. Yeah. Now that's a great point. Cause I think it comes back to like the sunk cost fallacy. Once we start it, it's like, oh my God, I gotta keep going with it forever. Yeah. And it's like, no, do it, do 10 episodes, you know, run a garden for a, a, a season. Who knows? Yeah. Just do see what happens and see what happens. So, right. Yeah. I think that's great advice. Um that might be a good point to put a pin in for, for this conversation. Maybe if you'll, you'll come back for another one, um, at some point, sure. what, uh, any final thoughts, questions, challenges for the audience, anything that you'd share to kind of wrap up our conversation? Sure. Um, something I was just thinking about today, actually, so I'll just share it was, uh, was how powerful it is. So if something goes wrong, if something feels weird as a chain or something we were talking about earlier, um, I think it's really useful to think about how useful that thing can be, right? If something goes wrong, there's a way in which it can be useful to you. It gains new insight, it helps you become the hero. And we often aren't trained to look for that. And I could, I could say to ask yourself, is this an asset, right? Like something goes wrong, is this an asset? Is there some way in which this is useful? But I actually don't really like, is this an asset? Because is this an asset? The answer could be no. So why don't we instead ask this? How is this an asset? Mm. We're going to start with the assumption point that it is. That if this thing went wrong, it is an asset. How? I remember, for example, when I... I remember thinking about this a lot during the pandemic, when um, or like during the lockdown portion of the pandemic, when um, you know, I'd be on work calls and or I'd be people would pay me and I'd be doing some virtual talk. And then of course my kids would burst into the room as kids do. And at first, I, like everybody, I think, was we were trying to hide that, you know, keep that separation between work and life. Right. What I came to realize though was that when the kids burst into the room, that was sometimes the most memorable moment for yeah. people of the whole meeting or whatever, because it was cute, because it was relatable, because no matter the relationship between me and the people that I'm talking to, we all are dealing with this. So there's a kind of leveling human experience. And I realized that like my ability to embrace this moment 
is also my ability to enhance this moment. So if a kid came into the room and I was in the middle of a keynote talk or something, I would plop them on my lap or I would ask them yeah. a question or something. And, and I found that it was an asset. People liked it. They liked me more as a result of it. That is a way in which we go from not just, is this an asset? Because is this an asset? I could have said, no, it's not. We need to keep these kids out of the room. Let me lock the door. To how is this an asset? Oh, how is it an asset? Because it builds trust and it builds relationships. And it makes me feel, it makes, it makes my audience more connected to me. Once you know that, once you have an answer to that, you can start to act accordingly. You can start to optimize for it. So I'd say when things are wrong, when things feel wrong, ask, how is this an asset? Take the, the glass half full approach. Sure. Like that. Yeah, that's yeah. how it is. Yeah, I mean, yeah, right? I it's, it's, it, it, it is, it is, and, and, and like ignoring the empty part of it, uh, right? And which isn't to say that like all bad things are good things or whatever. Like I understand yeah. the world is complex, but um, we need to train ourselves to, to work with what we've got. And sometimes what we've got is weird and confusing, and, but we got to work with it anyway. Jason, like you're an eternal optimist, I feel just like I am. So <laughs> yeah, we're, we're kindred yeah, spirits, uh, I guess. More or less. Yeah. yeah. Well, man, this was a lot of fun. Um, thanks for coming on. Where, where can if folks want to say hello online? Where, where do you spend the most time on the social channels? Uh, well, I spend the most time on uh, in social channels on LinkedIn so people can find me there. But I would also suggest, so I have a newsletter. It's called One Thing Better. Mm, Each week, yeah. one way to feel more successful and satisfied at work and build a career or company you love. And you can find that at my, uh, or you find that by going to onethingbetter.email. So that's a web, web address, onethingbetter.email. So just plug it into a browser, onethingbetter.email. And uh, that comes out every week. And if you respond to the email, it goes directly to my inbox and I will get back to you. Awesome. And I'll link that all up in the show notes. So Jason, thank you so much, man. This was a lot of fun. I certainly appreciate the time. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it as well. Hey everyone, and just one more quick thing before you head off on your day. If you're enjoying this podcast and are looking for other resources and tools to help you get started and move forward toward a happier and more fulfilling life, then I'd encourage you to head over to my website, brianondraco.com, and hit the subscribe button in the upper right corner. There you can find my newsletter and blog subscriptions, where I share insights and information around getting unstuck, perspective, mindset, relationships, habits, and much more. If you get a chance to sign up, I hope you enjoy. Thanks again for listening in and have a phenomenal day.